Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 63. What if you could create applications and deploy them to the web with just Python? Wouldn't it be nice to skip the additional full-stack development steps of learning three different languages in addition to Python? Well, that's the idea behind Anvil. And this week on the show, we have Meredith Luff, co-founder of Anvil. We talk about the history of Anvil and how the founders wanted to simplify web app creation. We discussed their choice to make the project open source and how that benefited the project's development. And we also cover creating a portfolio of projects and things that employers look for in the hiring process. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean's app platform. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Meredith. Hello. Nice to have you come on the show. Great to be here. All right. We're here to talk about the project that You've been working on for several years here of, of Anvil and kind of some of the history of it, but also I'm very interested in, you know, what's going on with the cross compiler that you have built too of, of Sculpt kind of been diving a little deeper in since we started our email exchanges and wanted to learn about it. So maybe we could start there. What do you do at Anvil and, and maybe give a little history of the project? Sure. So Anvil is a framework that lets you build full-stack web applications entirely in Python. So you don't need to use HTML or JavaScript or CSS. You can do it all with Python. So the easiest way is to go to anvil.works, where you'll get an editor where you can drag and drop to create the design of your web page. You can write in Python that then runs in the web browser uh, when someone runs your app. You can write your server-side code in Python, and there's even a built-in database and the whole thing can be deployed instantly and given a URL and put onto the public internet. That's so cool. <laughs> uh, that you can kind of just go and play with it, you know, and set up a free account and just kind of mess with it in that framework. That's very cool. Absolutely. Well, I mean, my, my background, my PhD is in uh, building usable programming systems. And my longtime friend, Ian, was in human-computer interaction. And if that's your specialty, and you look at the state of the web, as a programming platform today and like the the hurdles you have to leap over to do anything on the web if that's your expertise you will do an awful lot of uh, grousing to each other about it and at a certain <laughs> point we just sat down and said okay you know we we can build something to fix this and so that's what we set out to do yeah that's cool so why did you pick python so Oh, this is where I'm a little bit heretical for a real Python podcast. Python was a kind of an implementation choice for this. <laughs> That's okay. It is the obvious language because it is the world's favorite first programming language. Mm. It is accessible. It is straightforward. And there's a huge number of people who have experience with Python because they have built something, you know, they built they've been working with data in Jupyter Notebooks, or they have built something locally, or they are back-end engineers, and they then run into this huge barrier where they go, 
in order to put something out on the greatest application delivery platform on earth, I need now need to learn four more programming languages, HTML and JavaScript and CSS, and then React and Bootstrap and Django and Flask and SQL. It's just way too much. Yeah. And so Python was the obvious sweet spot because there are so many people who are there who can write the code. Like, you, you know, it's not, oh no, we're going to build something so you don't know how to learn how to code. No, you know how to code. You've done the difficult bit. Putting it on a web page and making it accessible to the world should be the easy part. Right. Yeah, I definitely have felt that pain. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I started programming a very long time ago. You know, I got out of high school in the late 80s and, and I, was, so I was, you know, learning Fortran and Pascal. And at that time, I was very tuned out because I was a musician. <laughs> uh -huh. And I was like, when do we do something creative with this? Like, where do we like build something that's like, you know, graphical or has something mm -hmm. to do with sound or whatever. So jumping into today, it's amazing what is possible, but then there's this huge like curve of like, okay, yeah, that's possible. But here's a stack of 10 books that you really would want to tackle <laughs> before you get going. Or, you know, you can kind of go through the tutorial maze of of okay how many technologies do i want to tie together and oh yeah preach it <laughs> yeah what is what is the age of these different things and <laughs> you know so oh absolutely yes like oh no that's last year's nobody uses last year's framework yeah that's definitely javascript unfortunately <laughs> which <laughs> i find so is that hard for you guys as a as a company that is oh you know, i mean doing stuff with javascript do absolutely because obviously we are we are building the infrastructure that makes this possible and there is uh there is a forehead-shaped dent on my desk, Mark. We are enduring this so that other people don't have to. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. When we speak about programming it directly in, in Python, is that Python 3, pretty much? Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. So what we have is, obviously, the system you're programming is different at different levels. So when you are writing the code that runs in the web browser, okay. then we use a program called Sculpt Library to translate that into JavaScript to run it in the web browser. And obviously, there are things that you can do with you know, a full Python 3 on your desktop that you can't do in the web browser, right? You can't just go ahead and open files. You can't go ahead and drive bits of GPU. So there are some limitations, but we approximate Python 3 as closely as we can. But when you're writing server-side code, then, of course, you are writing code for a full-fledged Python interpreter in there. Yeah, that's just pick your runtime. Yeah. What's cool about it is I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot of how, you know, not only is it, you know, the difficulty of trying to, to create things of not only, you know, thinking about the graphical user in elements and then the database elements, but then the server side elements and just mm -hmm. the idea of tying that all together brings me back to a tool that I've mentioned several times on the show that I was trying to help out a friend who had a small business and they wanted to build you know, have someone help them create some applications. And at the time they were pretty much clipboard <laughs> based mm -hmm. uh, type of company uh, working in environmental science. And so they would, you know, go out in the field, get dirty, things would get wet, yeah. you know, <laughs> just kind of working in the dirt in the... And come back and brush the mud off the clipboard and type it into a spreadsheet. Yeah, You got it. Exactly. That whole thing. And so I was like, well, they wanted to not have to keep re-entering, re-entering or mm -hmm. doing crude scans and having to clean off the copier um, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and so forth. And so I said, well, you should be able to do this with an iPad. And I had worked for Apple for a while. And so I had 
I, I basically, you know, it's like one of the creatives, you know, that term they have where mm-hmm. they like to be let train everybody. And so I had already known logic cause I'd worked at the school teaching logic and then I taught myself final cut and so forth. So I kind of knew like all their different like pro applications, but nobody mm-hmm. was learning this thing called FileMaker. And I'm like, what is that thing? You know, <laughs> and it's been kicking around forever, this database kind of thing. And with the advent of the iPad and the, and the iPhone, they kind of had created this neat little platform that you could basically very graphically throw together an application. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that's missing from that platform, you know, outside of the, the stools stuff that you could create was, okay, well, how do I share it? Mm-hmm. How do I back it up? How do I move things around? And then probably the most difficult part is how do I put it on the web? <laughs> Absolutely. And so, yeah, so like how could we have a shared sort of instance? So they never really wanted to pay the exorbitant fees to make that happen. I taught myself kind of how to do it, taught AWS and all that kind of stuff. But I was like, you know, this is so hard, this part of it. And it's so painful to try to just get this shared experience. And so that I, I wonder about that. Do you have small businesses approaching you with, like looking to try to do something similar, like we want to just stand up our application and then share it with our clients or... or oh, oh, goodness me, like all the time. Okay. That is, you know, that, that is one of the core, the core use cases of Anvil. Basically, I would say people use Anvil for one of three broad categories of things. And I mean, this is a programming system. You can use it for everything. So any generalization I make here is wrong. But broadly your three groups of people. First, you've got your data scientists. So people who are mashing data around, answering questions for the business or organization they're in, but you really don't necessarily want to, as a data scientist, be you know emailed a question by your manager and then sort of work with it all in a Jupyter notebook and then email them back a report a week later and then do it all again next week. It's much nicer if you can build a tool that's sort of self-service, they can go and answer that question themselves. And so the example I love to use is one of the moderators on our forum. So Al Campopiano, who works as a data scientist at a school district in Ontario, and he built a bunch of self-service applications. So educators at the schools can go, go into their data sets and ask things like, hey, are there any students who've suddenly started missing school? Mm. Are there people whose whose marks have suddenly dropped? And they can find that and intervene with those students quickly, whereas previously it would have taken until, you know, the next monthly report was generated where somebody might spot the problem. Right. And that's the power of creating self-service tools. So there's a whole bunch of like making data say self-service that that people use Amble for. The second category is I think the kind of people you've you've been talking about. Uh, just now. So I'm in a business organization and I have some internal tools. So these are, this is software that really, you know, we don't want necessarily our customers ever to see. But uh, internal stuff like, for example, you know, in environmental engineers or scientists going out into the field, you know, with an iPad and doing data entry. Or, and again, my favorite, favorite example of this one is a Norwegian TV broadcast network who use Amble to build the the software that their customer support people are looking at. So when you call them up and say, uh, hey, you know, my, my, my picture is weird, the box is complaining, sometimes it freezes, they can 
pull you pull up your account and go through and say, oh, well, you know, the network diagnostics are good. We don't have an outage in in Oslo, but your set-top box is complaining that it can't reach your Wi-Fi very well. Let's go fix that. And that's, you know, that's a piece of software that the rest of the world never sees, but it's really important to the operation of the business. And it's important to the operation of the business that they don't have to go and like commission some random web development shop who knows nothing about TV broadcast to build that. Because if the person who is the broadcast engineer and can write some Python can build that themselves, then they can actually build the thing that the customer service people need and iterate it as as they learn about the process rather than having to commission, you know, J random web developer. Right. No offense to the J random web developers out there, but like if you haven't spent your entire career doing TV broadcast, you know less than Anders Kaland about it. Yeah, that's that's my experience too. I, I keep seeing that you can meet people that you know know web development and so forth, but they're not going to have that domain specificity. And then, well, quite right because they've just spent they have spent years devouring that st- stack of ten books exactly and yeah. keeping up. Like that's that's what they've spent their career doing, and rightly so. So what we want to do is open up the creation of uh, these sorts of tools to people who have not spent their careers becoming good at web development and enable them nevertheless to produce applications that other people can use. Yeah. So so that's that that's group number two is sort of these internal applications. And group number three is sort of the most obvious, loud and splashy one, which is, hey, you know, and building new products. And this is software that consumers will actually be touching. So I don't know if you read like a few months ago in the New York Times, there was this feature about a company called Fairshape. And they're actually really cool. So they're a company that sort of that helps consumers with arbitration proceedings against like big abusive companies like, you know, your your cable companies, right. your uh you know, cell networks, your airlines and so on. Because of course, you know, they built you out of, you know, at a time. It's just not worth that money to go hire a lawyer to represent you in their weird pseudo consumer court. But these guys went, "Uh aha, actually, this stuff is is quite automatable, build an application where they can help you go through these arbitration proceedings um, at low enough cost and big enough scale that they can actually create serious negotiating leverage against these big companies and get you a better outcome. That's cool. And so that's a consumer-built application that's entirely built with Anvil. Nice. And so you can, there's you know, others I could mention, like, you know, a whole company that does like in-store iPads for choosing furniture. There's, there's tons out there. But those are the three big categories. There's the people who are making data self-serve. Yeah. And then there are people building internal tooling. And then there are people building new outward-facing products. And the whole point of Anvil is you can do any of these things because, and I think this is a little bit unlike something like FileMaker, because it's a general purpose tool, you can do with it anything you can do with the Python programming language because it's a real programming language with a real ecosystem. You can do whatever it is you need. There's, you know, you can you can rock up and build whatever it is you want, whereas something like FileMaker is a little bit more centered around being opinionated about, oh, fundamentally, all you're doing is editing a database. Yeah. You know, it's the idea with that is it's kind of a database powerful enough you can create some apps with it. Whereas the goal of Anvil is to be a full fledged web development system that is simple enough that you can use it to knock together a simple database based application in a few minutes. Yeah. 
to go back a little bit to the the school example, sure, I'm sure there's lots of ways that they could be approaching this, but querying that database in in that circumstance would that database be something that's internal to the school? Oh yeah, you know, set up on Oracle or whatever, or, you know, some kind of like you know system. That- yeah, they already have their yeah they already had their systems in their their I think their Microsoft shop, so that it's all in SQL Server in Azure, and also like. They, they bought this sort of learning management system product. You know, it's it's an integration challenge because they need to speak, you know, whatever their off-the-shelf thing speaks. And, but that's okay because they have, you know, the Swiss army knife that is Python and its library ecosystem to do it. Right. So, you know, I, I said before, sure, in the browser-side code, there's limits to what you can do. In the server-side code, you know, I want to talk to a SQL Server database, fine, import PyMSSQL. You know, okay. what was the problem? And likewise for accessing, you know, APIs on learning management systems. So there's a whole sort of data aggregation thing that is, again, it's it would be a challenge if you were doing it in anything except a really mature language with a really powerful ecosystem like Python. DigitalOcean's app platform is a new platform as a service solution to build modern cloud native apps. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let App Platform do all the heavy lifting related to infrastructure. Get started on DigitalOcean's App Platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's do.co slash realpython. I guess we could dive down that rabbit hole of, of like what are the types of additional libraries that you can access via Anvil. I, I know the list oh. is kind of endless because I always started to look at them. Yeah. But I just wanted to maybe get an example of some of them. Like I, you know, I, I saw, you know, one of the jobs I had for a while was a was working at a bank and I was building things like dashboards. And so I I, you know, immediately saw, oh, plotly, okay, cool, that's there. Like what are some of the other like examples that stand out, I guess? So yeah, or the the really funky thing about uh, Plotly is actually we have full client side integration with Plotly. So not only can you use something like Plotly Express on the server to do a whole bunch of data mashing, but you can take it to the front end and build interactive Plotly graphs with it. Nice. Generally speaking, you can use anything because that is the point. Any you know anything you can pip install, and even I mean it's it's not just libraries you can pip install you can use whole other environments so we going back to the data example as, as that's that's where we seem to be right now an sure. awful lot of data scientists spend a lot of their time in a jupyter notebook yeah and, and why not it's a really great environment but then you you end up with this awkward situation where you've built a solution in your jupyter notebook and you can sort of answer those emailed queries uh, by sending back a pdf report but this is the point where you want to make it self-serve and you can actually use a library called the uplink to connect your the, the Python in your Jupyter notebook that's running, you know, on the machine on your desk up to your application, and you get all the power of the server-side code in an Anvil application. You can operate it from your Jupyter notebook. So you can actually have, and we actually have an example tutorial of this on the website, you can have this machine learning model you've got in your Jupyter notebook and then suddenly say, okay, and this function in my notebook, you should be able to call this from the web and then we can make this a publicly accessible interactive service. So not only can you use any library you can pip install, you can use any Python environment you've got lying around Mm, as part of your application. 
So you mentioned briefly there things like creating a PDFs, and maybe this kind of jumps to the second solution where mm-hmm. you know somebody's out there doing a, a ticketing solution or something like that. Yeah, and they need to you know output not only like a receipt, but they need to report it back with like some kind of report. Absolutely. Is there? You know, I've seen already the tutorials on there for generating you know PDFs, but what I was wondering about is keeping it in the web and then keeping the documents sort of accessible. Mm -hmm. I can imagine things like PDFs or images, which were something that I was dealing with, with my environmental science company, those big files, if you will, of images and PDFs and other things like that. Most likely you're not going to stuff them in a database. Oh, well, I I see no reason why you shouldn't. Um, Anvil's built-in database. Okay. So uh, as ever, I am generalizing here. It's a programming environment. You can do whatever you want. But Anvil's built-in database, which is uh, it's backed by Postgres, it's you know scalable and all, has a facility for storing blobs of binary data. It's backed by Postgres's blob store, and you can very happily uh, generate a PDF. Uh, by the way, I, I suspect you saw this in the tutorial, but just to be clear for listeners, generating PDFs in Python is one of those things for which the ecosystem doesn't currently have a particularly great solution because you know, currently really the best things that you have out there are things like that sort of you generate an H you write some HTML and then you sort of use some library that drives a sort of headless Chrome render or whatever and effectively does a print PDF from it. And but that means you have to kind of write it all in HTML, and then you have all the problems of writing a web app, and you're not even on the web. And so we actually built an out-of-the-box PDF creation thing. Uh, you can just call amble.pdf.renderpdf, and you can use all the drag-and-drop tooling you use to build your web user oh. interfaces to build your PDF templates, and then render one of those to PDF. But however you do it, whether you use that or whether you use one of the other systems, it will produce a blob of binary data. Uh, Anvil has a way of dealing with binary data, whether you got it by rendering a PDF or by uploading something with the upload file uploader component uh, or from downloading something from the web or generated it with something like matplotlib. You can just turn it into one of these media objects and then you can stick that media object into the into Anvil's data tables, no problem. Okay. I'm sure there are different levels of service there and then different levels of for the database than i would guess uh absolutely yes on our on our free account don't expect to be you know sticking gigabytes of data into there uh i i think it's sort of a hundred megs on the free service but i should mention that the hosting service provided at anvil.works is a hosted version of an open source framework so if you can't or don't want to pay us any money there is absolutely nothing stopping you from going taking your app and going pip install anvil app server and you have the entire anvil framework running locally on your machine it actually even installs its own postgres database when you pip install it and so you can use you know at that point you can you know uh, thrash that database uh, to your heart's content. <laughs> However you want <laughs> yes absolutely so there are capacity limits if you're using a, a free hosted service but there's nothing stopping you hosting it yourself. We we aim to make the make the hosting service sufficiently slick and easy to use that it's worth paying for. But if this is an open source framework, you've you've got the control. So is that something that you could stand up inside of like a Docker container then? Oh, absolutely. Yes, there's a Docker file. You can uh, 
github.com slash andal dash works. Uh, you get the open source stuff. There's a Docker file in there for running it in a Docker container. There are tutorials on our website for if you built an application using the online editor at anvil.works, how to, to check that application out with Git onto your machine and then how to deploy that in onto, you know, AWS or DigitalOcean or Linode. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's an ordinary piece of server software. We try to make We've tried to make using the uh, open source app server as slick as we possibly can. We, we can't make it perfectly slick. You still need to set up a server. You still need to you know keep it secured and up to date. You still right. need to make that you, sure that you have a Python environment that you can actually type pip install into, all of which is you know part of the pain of running a web application. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> but once you've sol- solved that part, we try to make using the app server as slick as we can. That's great kind of going back to things structurally inside of Anvil as I, sure. I had listened to an episode you did way back in 2017 mm-hmm. on talk Python with, uh, with Michael Kennedy on there, you were talking a little bit about the sort of modularity of Anvil. And so like one of the things that, you know, you, we've talked about it, we've kind of touched on it briefly, the idea of like, okay, I want to make a web app. Okay. And, you know, I've been through Miguel Grinberg's Flash tutorial series and setting up all these things and all these different chapters, you know, and eventually you get to an area where like, okay, I'm going to build my own user management system. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's always the, I think one of the more painful things and I've had guests on talk, come to talk about just, you know, like the things that are involved in keeping that safe and, and keeping that secure and so forth. And so I, I was listening and I heard you guys talk about that. And I was wondering if, if, if we could talk a little bit about the user management Absolutely. that you have as a solution and then like maybe how it's changed over the years. Yeah. So uh, Anvil, for precisely the reasons that you've talked about, that user management is this toxic combination of really very fiddly. Mm-hmm. And if you get one thing wrong, You've got attackers all up in your system, yep. uh, and this is this is not a good combination. Sort of fiddly, boring, and if you lose concentration, you get owned. It's not a nice place to be. <laughs> yeah, we have built an out of the box user management service it's called the User Service. It stacks on top of data tables. It just re- uh, manages users as rows in tables, and it's got out of the box things like you know, obviously email and password login, and then federated login with things like uh, Google or Facebook or Microsoft, or if you're using, you know, working in an enterprise with its own single sign-on, SAML can talk to anything. The thing about the user service is it's built on top of the primitives you already have. So you could absolutely roll your own and do without the user service if you wanted to. There's nothing, there's no secret source. It's not like, ah, unless you use our approved out-of-the-box solution, you couldn't do this. But what we did was we took a thing that people often have to do that often causes a lot of pain and a lot of insecurity and said, here is an out-of-the-box system you can you can add to your application. It will manage, you know, it will manage your password securely. It will manage locking people out if they use too many, uh, get their password wrong too many times, and then allowing them to reset their password by email when they do that. It'll manage sort of the OAuth and SAML of logging in with something like Google. It will just do that stuff for you, so you don't have to do that grunt work. But if you do want to customize it, then you can sort of you can dig through the layers and do anything from, oh, well, I want my login form to look a little bit different, but I want it to use all the same machinery under the hood, to I have completely and totally re-implemented this thing from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> that's, again, th- that's the goal. It's not, ah, 
maybe maybe this is an opportunity to to illustrate a philosophical point. Anvil is sometimes described as a low-code tool. And every time I hear that, I, 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 on one hand, yes. On the other hand, I bristle a little because an awful lot of tools in that category, they look great in demos. As long as you stay on the rails, you stay doing the things that the creators intended, then it looks really good. The moment you want to do one thing that the creators of the system didn't think of first, then you are suddenly in a world of hurt. And Anvil is sort of set up to be the very opposite of that, which is to say that your starting your starting components are a real darn programming language. Right. And on top of that, we will build things that make your life really easy. But for example, if you do not want to use the out-of-the-box data table service with its it's very opinionated about how it represents rows in a database table as Python objects. And that being opinionated wins you a lot because everything is a Python object. You don't need to mash your data into four different representations. You can take a row from the database and return it all the way to the client and use it in your UI designer with full autocomplete because the system knows about your full stack. That's very powerful. And we can do it because we are opinionated about how you access your database. But if you don't want to do that, that's no problem. You're writing Python. Import PsychoPG2, connect to a Postgres database, knock yourself out. Right. And the rest of the system will still work. And that was something that was very, very important to us. I haven't messed with uh, those local tools much, um, but I, I pretty much... I think I hit the barriers pretty quickly every time also. Yep. In the sense that like, yes, I can use this thing, but I don't know if I can make it so other people can use this thing the way that, that I I think would be like just even the word friendly (laughs) being inside there. It's like, it's low code, but it's like, you still have to be savvy. You know, you still have to be, you know, able to do a little more uh, than, (laughs) <laughs> get around with it. The, uh, this is the problem. This is the center of the problem. You are telling a computer what to do. Yeah. And we have been doing that for about three quarters of a century now. And in that time, nobody has come up with a better way of telling a computer what to do than to write text in a programming language. Right. And every time someone tries, they either end up simplifying it so much that you can't do what you want, or you end up, or you end up with sort of Cthulhu's own flowchart, and you might as well be a programmer for all the computational thinking you're doing. Right. And either way, you're you're sitting there going, "This should be a five-line for loop. <laughs> Let me write the five-line for loop." Okay. Like the problem right. with web development is not the development; it's the web. You, we should not be scaring people away from code. Code is good. You should be able to get somebody to the code without it being so scary or intimidating dealing with all the other layers, all the other programming languages, all the other frameworks. That, that's where the complexity we should be taking away is. The code itself is important. It's the best way to tell a computer what to do. Yeah, I mean, you can get somebody started pretty early. Yeah. That's one of the, the, one of the examples I wanted to dive into is... Oh, sure. The, the high school student, I, I talked to... Uh, a teacher. Mm-hmm. I think you maybe even spoke with him a little bit also at PyCon, um, this guy, Robert Ball. I'm going to try to have him come on the show too a little bit, but he te- he's a teacher at a technical high school in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And he said he had been using Anvil um, with this idea of, all right, 
you've been learning Python this whole semester, year, whatever um, time period. And I, as a technical high school, I want to see your proficiency. And to do that, I want to have you create a final project. And the, you know, most often with final projects, you know, if it's just a, you know, set of code or what have you, it, it's, it can be a little less exciting. That was something I was always kind of frustrated with a lot of educational institutions <laughs> is like, in the end, I want to create something that I can share with other people and they would still be maybe interested in even looking at it or checking it out. Or in this case for a technical high school, yeah, something I could share with a future potential employer that, Hey, I created this project and, you know, even, even for an internship, it'd be nice to show that you can, you know, handle yourself with some code. And so absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I want to, just rewind this conversation to back when we were talking about how you got started with programming. Because you were sort of late 80s, 40s, and that was a little bit too early. I got started in this golden age of QBasic, where I could learn a little bit of programming and I could put graphics on the screen. And that was back in the DOS days. That was what everything did. I could create something that was like all the other programs I was using. And so I could, for example, share that with my friends. And then I moved on to Visual Basic in the Windows world. And again, you could create something that was like every other application on your system. In that case, it was, you know, Windows applications with windows and pop-ups and menus and things. Right. And that was within the reach of, for example, your average high schooler. And now we've got to this place where you can build web applications, you know, anyone can build a web application that can be used by anyone on earth, but it's not really anyone because the, as you say, you need to march through this, you know, 10 books worth of stuff before you can get that done. And what we are explicitly aiming to do is to take us back to this world in which if you can program, you can build an application that's like what everybody else is using, which is to say a web app that you can, in fact, you know, whether you are a student, showing it to a prospective employer or you know you are a broadcast engineer at a tv company and you are opening it up to your customer service team it, it's useful it's real and this whole thing is built because the complexity in that system is not beyond a high schooler right the essential complexity the logic of an application of a real application is absolutely not beyond what a high schooler can learn or what you can do in an internship. And it's only this messy incidental complexity around the web that stops people from building applications that are like what they use every day. And so we're bringing that back. Potentially financial things of like, okay, uh, who's going to help me pay for this hosting? And Oh, uh, all that, yes. All these other kinds of things. Yeah, so... Absolutely. I mean, something I should say is that for classroom use, uh, Anvil is completely free, even the uh, the pay for features. Uh, so drop us a line at education at anvil.works and we will set your class up. But even if you are not in a class, if you're doing this solo, we have deliberately made the free plan uh, with the free hosting and everything. We've made that we basically put all the features in that you can do everything with the free plan that you can do with the uh, with the professional plans uh, you just can't do things like you know put it on a custom domain or you know there's a banner at the top saying uh, made with Anvil. right but it's not that we say oh no you can only play in the kiddie pool you can write real programs and my goodness people do some of the stuff you see on our forums that it's really spectacular 
This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It dives into the topic of functional programming in Python. It's titled Python's Map Function, Transforming Iterables. The course is based on an article by Leodonis Bozoramos, and in the course, Cesar Aguilar takes you through how Python's map works, how to transform different types of Python iterables using map, how to combine map with other functional tools to perform more complex transformations, and what tools you can use to replace map and make your code more Pythonic. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to apply functional programming concepts in Python, and not only how to use map, filter, and reduce, but also learn some additional Pythonic tools such as list comprehensions and more. Our video courses are broken into easily consumable sections. Where needed, we include code examples for the techniques shown, and all the lessons have transcripts, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. To kind of break down some of the complexity for people that maybe haven't even cracked those 10 books. Uh (laughs) Wise life choices. Yeah. (laughs) To think of like, okay, what do you mean by, you know, creating a a server in the sense of like the anvil code like what is that going to do for me and oh you know where does that kind of lie in the whole stack of you know code stuff that i'm building okay so normally if you are creating a traditional web application that what happens is somebody opens up a web browser they type in the url of the application you've built and they see it and what happens is that the web browser which is a program running on their computer goes out and uses the URL you've entered to uh, identify and then connect to another computer out there on the internet. And uh, we refer to one of these as a server, uh, and it will be running some program that is capable of receiving that connection, talking to the web browser, and serving up web pages, and then uh, dealing with the interactions. So when the web browser, usually actually what you do is you serve up a web page in HTML and a program in JavaScript. And when the person with the web browser sort of clicks a button, it, that runs a piece of JavaScript on their computer, which then sends a message back to your server. And then you've, you've written, the program you've written on your server responds to that and probably also talks to a database that you're also, you're also running out on that computer out there somewhere on the internet. Okay. So like if we were to talk about your hello world example, that is a really common one. Yeah. In general, that is not involving a server. It's basically a set of code that is getting loaded directly into the person's browser, their Chrome session, what have you. When they open that page up and it, it it's just running. But if I want to do anything additional on top of that, I want to talk to the database or I want to have, say, multiple different modules or things like that running that I want to be able to call, then that's kind of creating this two-way communication where I'm actually having to press a button to request something from that server to have it do something. And then we're kind of going back and forth a little more. Is that? Absolutely. And in a traditional world, the way you would do that is by writing effectively two separate programs, one programming something like Python using something like Django that you then have to find a computer somewhere on the internet and run that. And then another program in JavaScript that's running where the, you know, where the user is on their computer and talk to them. And you, you effectively have to write two different programs that happen to talk to each other. Hence the 10 and, books. <laughs> yes. Well, oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Those are only two of the many. Yeah. 
And what we did with Anvil is we we tried to take that complexity away. And one of the biggest ways we do that is by enabling you to write both of those things in Python. So you write the code that is running on the web browser in Python, and you write the code that's running uh, on the server on the computer out there in the internet, also in Python. And instead of having to make you and making you have to deal with all the complexities of uh, HTTP, which is how these two things talk to each other, and you know how to make that sort of request from the stuff in the browser to the stuff on the server and the response, we've because that's neatly integrated. And we know we have Python on both ends. We just say actually we're going to make some special functions on the server. Anything you've written in a server module that is tagged anvil.server.callable, uh, you can just call that like a function call from the stuff in the browser. So there is, you know, there's a piece of irreducible complexity, which is uh, that there, some of the code you are writing is executing on the user's computer when they open your application. Yeah. And some of the code you're writing is running out there on the internet in the central place that they're all talking to. But the thing that you don't have to do is write those two things into two different programming languages, which is painful, or mash all the questions and answers they're asking uh, they're communicating with each other into JSON, which is painful, or set up a new computer and install all the software required to run a web server, which is also very painful. <laughs> and the idea is we've taken that down to the, the minimal possible is, yes, you're, you're writing, if you're using Anvil, uh, if you're writing uh, in a text editor with a yellow background, that code is running on Anvil servers somewhere central on the internet. And if you're writing something with a white background, that code is running on the web browser when somebody opens that and you can make a function call from one to the other with, you know, by tagging what the server function is, hey, this is something it's okay to call from the web browser and making a function call from there. So we've tried to make that as simple as we can. One of the things I I struggled with in the design of trying to do things like as far as the going back to FileMaker and yeah. creating these things that were like laid out on a, an iPad or what have you is, you know, I would have to like mm-hmm. basically design for the window. And then of course, you know, Oh yeah. Shapes change and <laughs> sizes of devices change and, Oh wait, I have to have an iPhone version and I have to have an uh-huh. iPad version. So I, I wonder, you know, in the, uh, how many years now is it five, six years that Anvil has been around? Mm-hmm. Is that been a big challenge is on, on that client side, the front end side of, of like not only addressing desktop computers, but all these mobile devices and the look of them. Oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. So it's like, had to think for a moment. It's it's not quite four years. We've been really out. So that, that actually the uh, the interview you referred to with uh, Michael Kennedy at Talk Python that was sort of our coming out party, really. Oh wow! Okay, cool. So yeah, it has been quite a while ago from from the perspective of uh, of this project. Yeah. So yes, from the very beginning, the applications created with Anvil are responsive, which is the word for that being able to deal with different screen sizes. Again, in the drag and drop designer, just every time you create a container and put two things next to each other, you can change the property on that container. Like these things will stay next to each other if you're on a desktop, but if you're on a tablet, then they will switch and they'll become full width from one on top of the other and that kind of thing. So responsive design, being able to deal with mobile first applications has been in Anvil since since our first release, really. And indeed, there are a whole bunch of applications out there. So I talked about Fairshake, this consumer rights company. Like They are used almost entirely from mobile. Uh, it's, it just works. It's a web. <laughs> Is that a custom library that you built in as far as the design? 
So yes, the the we built our own user interface toolkit. So the norm normally for people who who, who have not entered this particular dungeon, um, normally the way that you would present a user interface in a web application is you have your basically your. It sounds crazy, but it's true. You generate code in your programming in your program that is code in a language called html that is there and also code in a language called css and the browser puts takes that html and then uses the rules you have defined in your css to lay that that html out on the screen which means you're writing like you're writing code that generates code in at least two or three different programming languages and this is one of the things that gives people migraines when they are trying to do web development or certainly when they're trying to learn it and so what we built was a user interface library in python so when you're building your user interface in anvil uh, when you put, for example, a, you know, a, a piece of text on the screen, that is a Python object. Is there's a class called label. You can set, you know, it has a property called text. So you can go self label one dot text equals hello world. You can say, you know, dot align equals left, align equals right. So instead of generating code in a different programming language to uh, create your user interface, we've built a user interface library that is entirely in Python that handles all that display stuff and that user interface library supports multiple screen sizes natively nice if you wanted to customize the look and the feel of some of those things is that is that easy to access oh yes absolutely you can and this is another important part of anvil because the web platform is huge there's so much you can do and uh, for example in you know pixel by pixel fine-grained user interface design you know Design exactly how th- how your page is going to look. You cannot currently do that with the Anvil editor, but you can go into the editor and then edit the CSS that styles these components. And so you can get your pixel perfect design. And even better than that, you're not editing the HTML and CSS that comes out of the Anvil editor. You're editing the HTML and CSS that goes in, which means that once you have built, you know, you, you you've built the design that you want your app to look like, you can go straight back into the drag and drop designer and drag and drop buttons and text boxes and so on, and they will follow that design, which means that you only need really to t- you only need to tangle with CSS for a fairly short period of time. And you know, if you have a team of people, only one of you needs to get their hands that dirty, and everybody else can continue designing their user interface in the style that you have created. And this is there's a I mean high level thing the web is really complicated yeah. and a lot of yeah. it is unnecessary incidental complexity but complexity is there and sooner or later somebody's going to want to do something we haven't thought of like we we try to make all the things we think of really simple but someone's going to want to do something we haven't thought of and the important thing there is to create an escape hatch where they can do what they want so if you want to use a particular javascript library for which we haven't written a python wrapper okay at this point you know you're you're touching some javascript you're going to get some of that on you but we've made it possible you can import that javascript library you can you know copy and paste the html snippet there's a place in anvil you can put that to load the library and then you can go from anvil.js.window import you know for example mapbox so that's a that's a mapping library that's really quite popular these days and my colleague Brooke actually did like a live, uh, a live uh, Twitch stream earlier this week as we record this. So 
probably like a week or two ago by the time this episode goes out, where she took the Mapbox JavaScript library, uh, dropped it into her app, and then used it entirely from Python. And so the point there is that when you need to go outside the things that we've thought of, you can do it. You can always drop down. You want to drop. You want to do pixel perfect, perfect design. You can drop down and write CSS. You want to use you know, something like Mapbox. You can drop down and use the JavaScript library. We don't stop you doing those complex things. We just make what's well, the classic phrase: make the simple stuff easy and the complicated stuff possible. Yeah, like uh, one of the things I was wondering about that's super common. You know, we talked about accessing databases and other things like that, but mm-hmm. accessing additional APIs across the web. Is, oh, yes. Again, if you are, since you're using Python, you can be using requests and yeah, exactly. other packages. <laughs> You've answered yeah. the question yourself. Like so many of the questions of, of questions of that sort are just, you're using Python. Do the Python thing. It's already there. <laughs> okay, cool. And then I, we touched on it several times. Also, the idea of the modularity of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, creating your own Python modules. Oh, yes. But you can be bringing in modules from some of these other users that someone else has built some of this other code. Oh, absolutely. So what you can do, you can have you can have an app, uh, a thing that's effectively a library, and you can import that, and that library can, t- can define, obviously, you know, modules you can import on the client or on the server or in both places, but you, it can even define custom components so it, that, that appear in your toolbox. And there's actually, there are a couple of community collections of these things out there. So people who've created particular components to do something that isn't part of the Anvil standard library, and you could just add that library uh, as a dependency to your project, and suddenly all these components will appear in your toolbox, and you can drag and drop them onto the page. That was like one of the most painful things in FileMaker was like, can I just get a calendar picker i don't want those stupid sliders anymore yep the little scrolling wheels you know <laughs> that kind of stuff that you see on the the iphone back in the day yeah which they're finally fixing some of it but yeah <laughs> it's so so painful well cool i wanted to ask you some questions about this idea of building projects to showcase it's been a theme that i've been hitting on the show a lot lately mm-hmm. the idea that you know i'm somebody who I never finished college. And so I've been bouncing around in all these different careers over, over time. And it's always been mm-hmm. me being able to show my work and, and show my sort of troubleshooting skills and, you know, abilities to communicate. Absolutely. And so I think of that as, as something that I think is a, as a showcase to employers that, you know, using a tool like this and, and just even like building an app, do you, do you see that as like a, a common thing? Is that something that, when you as an employer are looking at prospective employees that, that you would be interested in? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a, a portfolio is a really great way of showing what you can do. I mean, I should say this as, as an employer, as someone who's currently hiring, it, a, a portfolio is not, you know, it, it is not the be all and end all. And, you know, if you are currently sort of heads down with something else in your life or you have a job where everything's tied up in NDAs and you can't show anything you've done and you don't have any spare time to create things. Mm, That's true. That is okay. It's not going to get you bounced out of the room. But somebody who is, and certainly when we're interviewing someone, we want to see what they can do. And 
an interview is, you know, it's a limited window to do that. And so we have to, you know, we, we peer as well as we can through that small letterbox uh, to see <laughs> what that person can do. But if that person comes to us with a portfolio, and whether that is a portfolio of fi- something, you know, writing, sure. of code, of applications, it what that shows is that they can actually, you know, that they can do that thing. And that is, you know, it, it makes our life as interviewers easier to have someone rock up and say, yeah, I can already do the thing you're asking. Look over there. <laughs> yeah. I think it about having that conversation is easier too. It's like now you're discussing, you know, something that, that they've built as opposed to talking sort of esoterically about Absolutely. ideas and things that, that... Or about some problem you've just asked them to solve on the yeah. spot. Which, I mean, to be fair, that is, I mean, it's it's about the fairest way to interview we can find. We can, you know, get people to write some code for us. But somebody will naturally have had more time to think deeply about something that they created over a period of, you know, weeks or months earlier uh, than something they've just done in an hour in an interview. Yeah. So I want to ask you a couple of questions that are sort of meta questions. Absolutely. One is, um, okay, let's say you could go back in time and you wanted to start this project over, mm-hmm. what are some of the things you would change? Oh, so this is really interesting because Anvil was created to scratch our own itches and there were some things that we discovered relatively late that would have been really handy. So something that I would have... I mean, when we first when we first put the first prototype of Anvil up on Reddit... It didn't even have like server code. It didn't even have a database. It, it just had a system for mm. storing your data in something like Google Sheets, uh, because we thought that would be that would be useful. So I would go back and tell myself that no, you're building. You know, you you are building a full web app system from the beginning. Build. You know, make sure that there is built-in server-side code, built-in database. I think demonstrations that you can produce beautiful things with this framework are uh, were a thing that we came to too late so if you go to our website right now go to the examples you'll find uh, a bunch of you know well-styled examples that mostly my colleagues have built and that's that is a thing that i'd sort of I don't know I have computer scientist brain. I have a habit of sure. waving that away as well. Obviously, you know, once you've shown me that yes, you know, you could you you can style this thing, then I can make it look however I want, and you know, people will want will want proof of that. I think that would probably be the biggest thing I would go back and uh, yell into past me's ear. There are also a couple of like technical underlying architecture things that I would that I would want to change. Oh, here's the biggest one actually: make the framework open source from the beginning. We we were far too nervous about it and i can sort of see why we were nervous about it because putting an open source uh, making your product open source in general is a good way to have uh, amazon pick it up and host it for everybody for less money than you can afford to charge and free riding on your, all your development effort and so i can see why we were nervous but it's just that that was it was the obviously right shape for the companies to, you know, it's a web framework. It needs to be open source. We we should have just, you know, got around to that in the beginning rather than waiting a couple of years before uh, working out the obvious. When when you did open source it, what were some of the benefits that you you got from that? I mean, outside oh. of like the, you know, potentially the the love from the community. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, it's the the, the it's 
the most important thing is we gave people optionality. We put the power into their hands. You know, a meteor could strike Southeast England tomorrow and wipe us all out. And you know that your applications will be just fine because they're running on open source framework. You can, you know, check them out, host them yourself. It'd be fine. And that I think is honestly the biggest benefit people get out of it. But obviously we also had our, um, uh, we immediately started getting contributions from our community, which is great. Um, we've actually, so one of the developers who now works on the Anvil platform started out just as a really enthusiastic community member. He was a teacher who was using Anvil for class projects, and he got really into it, got very good at using it, started doing some contracting on the side, building things with Anvil, started getting interested in Sculpt, Python to JavaScript compiler, uh, started contributing to that where, you know, I'm a maintainer. And so again, you know, we could, we'd already knew that his code was good because I'd been code reviewing it and then, you know, came on board and has been, you know, working on the, on the inter- internal guts of Anvil ever since. And so like open, being open source, I think throws that door even wider to your community to show you what they can do. Yeah. Uh, because your source code is out there for them to use. You know, we, we sometimes now get like uh, bug reports on, on our user, user community forum that says, so such and such doesn't work. And I actually think the problem is on like run, runtime.cludge line, though, four, five, two. Here's a link to your GitHub repository. And I go, <laughs> yep, that's right. Tap, 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 patch. Wow. That's cool. It's, it's nice. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just that it's, it's, it is a lovely way place to be as well uh, it, it makes us feel feel better about ourselves feeling like we're not compromising in favor of commercial viability what's been your biggest challenge oh boy i mean that is a very big question because <laughs> okay you want to hit some smaller ones instead <laughs> well we are i mean because anvil is anvil is a reimagining of what web development ought to be about which is a huge challenge. So there were huge technical challenges. I would say probably the biggest challenge there was social. We spent a very long time in this place where every time we would go to a conference. So, you know, you will, a lot of your listeners may recognize my name and voice from yeah. PyCons and various around there. I spoke at PyCon US just a couple of weeks ago and we would go to these, to these things and sort of start doing demos and immediately get crushed by the stampede. Are there, uh, we have brag photos on our on our job ad site to show that, yes, we, we do get popular. But it was a little bit frustrating as a developer. Like, I know in my, my internal development sense that we have built something cool and useful. And, you know, our user forum is telling us that this is amazing. And every time we go to a conference, we get surrounded yeah. by people. And then actually getting out there into the world that this thing exists and that it is worthwhile and that it's real, it's not another sort of toy low-code environment has proven to be, I would say, the biggest challenge of them all. Yeah, I can see that. I I look at the the market for a lot of these things and I just sort of shake my head sometimes at like, you know, just going back, I know I'm kind of harping on FileMaker, but that's the one I spent the most time in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went to their conference and, you know, and it has a history. And so there's like all this kind of like stuff going back and, Mm -hmm. but just looking at just trying to code in it alone, it's so frustrating because it's like just, I mean, people want to make, you know, 
say that Python's a scripting language and it's like, no, <laughs> okay, <laughs> there so, truly is a scripting language that I've dealt with and that you, <laughs> you, you can't do anything, but just run these goofy little scripts when you hit a button or something. I, this is much more than that. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, this is the, um, the important thing about Python. I mean, it embodies something that is really important about what we create, what we are setting out to create with Anvil, which is that it is accessible. It's accessible in the way that we want Anvil to be too, because it is, you know, if you went out into the street and asked somebody, hey, what does it mean for some, you know, some programming environment to be accessible? They'd probably say, oh, well, it's, you know, simple for novices to pick up. And like, they'd be right, because it is important that this stuff is not beyond the capability of a high school. But if that's all it is, then you're doing them a disservice because you're sticking in the, them in the playpen and not giving them room to grow their powers. Right. And so it needs to be simple enough for the novices and powerful enough for the seasoned professionals. And that is, you know, that's, that's why we have these escape hatches. It's why we, you can do all these important things with, with Anvil. And like in the web context, people look at it funny and they raise one eyebrow and they go, huh? But those are, those are conflicting goals. Nothing could possibly be simple enough for novices and powerful enough for professionals. And the Python community in particular knows that's not true because Python is the language that you first teach an eight-year-old with their first Raspberry Pi or their first programming class in school. And it's also the language that drives Instagram or that Google DeepMind used to beat the human mind at Go for the first time in recorded history. You know, scripting language my foot. (laughs) Right. It is accessible is what it is. It is a real programming language with a huge ecosystem and deadly serious usage. And it is also, because it should be, simple enough that you can pick it up. So we, we talked briefly about, I asked you about like what, what you looked for in a prospective employee and you know the idea of like uh, projects and things like that. And you kind of mentioned offhandedly that, oh, and we're hiring right now. You want to dive a little deeper into that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think Firstly, the answer for what we are looking for was that was a narrow question about right, right, exactly portfolio. I mean, the things that we are most looking for well, obviously depend by role. We're currently recruiting for senior developers and junior junior developers, and it's basically the sort of actually it's going to end up being the same work. It's the how how much experience you have coming in. I mean, the first developer we ever employed, she was nine months out of boot camp. And it's simply phenomenal. So, so the thing that we are not looking for necessarily for everybody is, oh, I have be, you know, I have 11 umpty ump years of Django experience. What we are looking for is that you can solve problems, that you are interested in learning this stuff and that you are interested in picking up. I mean, it's a huge system. So you're got, you've got to be okay picking up something new. Anvil itself, you know, spans everything from like, Python to JavaScript compilers, the implementation of this Java use, JavaScript user interface framework. There's like the API stuff that runs this platform that takes care of, you know, when somebody, when a request comes in, routing it to the right, right place, managing all these server resources for people. That's, that's not things that typically people have typically built before. Right. And of course, then there's all the, all the Python libraries that are, you know, running on the server and managing, yeah, the, the things that you are, the, the runtime environment that you are using and things like the user's service. There, there is 
so much <laughs> to work on. And so we don't need you to be experienced in all of it. We need you to be interested in learning. And for you know the junior developer, interested in learning and uh, able to show us that you can deal with this new new stuff and deal with it well, that's all we want. For a senior developer, we are probably a little bit more interested in, you know, having shown experience of, you know, dealing with a complex or uh, difficult or interesting or advanced uh, systems before. But, you know, we're not going to be asking you to do the same thing again. We're going to be asking you to do something new. But whoever you are, whether you are applying for a junior developer role or a senior developer role or are developer advocates, which are who are also developers, these are people who go out and use Anvil and show show what Anvil can be used for. And you know, they too write code all day. We are looking, yes, we are looking for technical competence, but communication, attitude, the ability to to think about people in a way that lets you look at the web in all its complexity and think about the person using it and think, how can I make this programming life easy for them? Yeah, That kind of communication and thinking about the human is absolutely top of the list. Yeah, cool. Is, is a, are they remote jobs? I, I think you mentioned briefly the, the location where you guys are located. <laughs> uh, so we, yeah, we are, oh, well, well, uh, if you haven't guessed from uh, my accent, uh, we are based in the UK. We are based in Cambridge, the original one, not this newfangled thing in Boston. We are semi-remote, so we're looking for people who, uh, at the moment, who are or can move to the UK and uh, who are willing to be in our lovely, friendly office in Cambridge at least a day or two a week. But obviously, if you're around and you can you know, come and join the fun full time, please do. All right. So I have a couple of weekly questions that I like to ask. Sure. And the first one is, what's something that you're excited about in the world of Python? And it could be you know, like a book or a conference or, or a package or what have you. Oh, so I am filled with both excitement and trepidation at how the Python language is evolving. It's like we finally got past the Python 2 to Python 3 transition, and now all these features are arriving in the language. So async await, match blocks, you know, new ways of doing dictionaries, the walrus operator, it's all coming in thick and fast. And yeah. I do think, oh, I'm type checking. Sorry, can't forget that. And I am excited by the new possibilities. And I want to be and, and as tempered with caution because the accessibility of Python is so important. We don't want to introduce so much complexity that we remove that ability for someone to pick this up for you know, pick this up for the first time and go, oh, this is actually pretty simple. I can do this. Right. Yeah, totally. Like we were talking offline before we started about the last PyCon and um, just a couple weeks ago. And there was so many talks about mm-hmm. it, where is Python headed? You know, part of it is like this whole side of the type checking, but also lots of development in sort of compilers or just in time compilers or, you know, the general speed of Python. And oh. um, it's very exciting. I guess, I guess that is maybe us being able to, to move beyond version two and, <laughs> and really focus on the, the future with three. And yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely excited about, uh, about new compiler technologies. I mean, obviously like I, I'm a sculpt maintainer. I'm a compilers guy. I, 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 I absolutely love this stuff. I, Absolutely, we don't have time to talk about it now, but there's a lightning talk I gave at PyCon a couple of uh, years ago about PyCon UK about the 
PyPy compiler, which is just one of these really cool pieces of technology, like write a Python Python interpreter in Python. Mind-blowing. And some of the cool things you can do if you control compiler, and that's actually how we do some of our sandboxing. So running code we code from untrusted users uh, on our own computers like there is the, i think there is so much scope for cool things as we move the interpreting compiler space forward i agree with you i'm excited to see what comes next so the, the next one is what is something that you want to learn next oh so am i allowed to say something outside python yep because the rust programming language is one of those ones i like i keep having my eye on it i think i keep thinking I don't know whether I'm going to enjoy programming in this, but I <laughs> yeah. darn well want to know it. Sure. So that's that, that's probably up on my list. Yeah, it's, uh, just watching. I had a conversation with Brett Cannon, and I've been watching his uh, series about unraveling Python. He's very interested in Wasm, and mm-hmm. but at the same time, he says, "Yes, I'm interested in Rust. <laughs> Not that I'm changing, but he's always looking at other languages, which makes sense as a core maintainer." And I think. Absolutely. Well, it's. Uh, I think that people who get tribal about their language might be looking at things slightly the wrong way, because especially with something like Python, something like Rust, like they are, they are filling very different niches. Rust is about proving to the compiler certain properties about your code so that you can run it, which is incredibly powerful, but involves you having, you know, a, a good long debate with the compiler uh, before you can actually <laughs> write any yeah. code. And Python is about here to there in a really ergonomic and easy road. Sort of, in many ways, sort of Rust is, you know, climbing the clear, the sheer cliff face and the view at the top is going to be worth it. And Python is the, you know, smooth paved, paved asphalt road to getting something working. And these languages can and absolutely should coexist. Yeah. I, you know, the majority of people that I've met that are very interested in Rust are are people that are a little deeper into the languages and are, are the ones building things like frameworks and mm-hmm. building uh, additional tools and and are kind of working at oh and that's what the language is built for right right and that's why it's interesting is that you know it's like this is kind of for helping to build some of the machinery <laughs> in some ways yeah, yeah absolutely uh, and, and those those of us who are obsessed with building machinery who will you know devote years of their life to building the machinery behind <laughs> reinventing the web as a programming platform yeah that that's catnip to us yeah <laughs> that totally makes sense so i'll remind everybody that you can check out anvil and use it for free at anvil.works well i, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show this has been a great talk thank you very much for having me i have had fun all right talk to you soon bye-bye i really want to thank Meredith for coming on the show this week Make sure you check out the show notes to learn more about the project. And don't forget, you can get started on DigitalOcean's app platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's do.co slash realpython. And I want to thank you for listening to the RealPython podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the RealPython podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.